Did you hear what they did at the WPA? When the banks went belly up and the jobs all went away. You can put a pretty picture on the wall, but a, a picture that's well done, but also says something to people. I think that's the kind of art that moves me. From 1935 to 1943, the Federal Art Project, part of the Works Progress Administration, or WPA, employed some 10,000 artists and craft workers, helping them survive the Great Depression. The artists created hundreds of thousands of visual arts, paintings, murals, prints, posters, and renderings. Many of them survive to this day but you have to know where to look for them. That's why I found myself on Telegraph Hill yesterday during a visit to San Francisco, meeting up with Harvey Smith, who leads tours of local WPA sites. Coit Tower is home to a stunning collection of murals that have recently been restored. I'd seen them many years ago and had been struck by the depictions of workers and bosses that managed to be simultaneously beautiful and politically powerful, and arranged to meet up with Harvey so he could shed some light on their creation and meaning. Harvey does a terrific job describing the art, but we've also got a great album of photos of the murals posted on the Labor Heritage Foundation's page on Facebook and on Labor History in Two. The year was 1917. That was the day IWW leader Frank Little was buried in Butte, Montana. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. To a different beat. He said even artists need to eat. He said even artists need to eat. Did you hear what they did? So if you could introduce yourself. Okay, I'm Harvey Smith. I work with two New Deal organizations. One is the Lemmy New Deal and also the National New Deal Preservation Association. And I've written a book called Berkeley in the New Deal. And the idea of that was to showcase one, one city out of many hundreds of cities that benefited from the New Deal. So what's your background? How did you get into doing this? It's kind of an interesting story. After the earthquake in 1989 here in the Bay Area, I knew that we had to do millions of dollars of reconstruction. A few of us thought it would turn into billions, which it did. But uh, having worked a lot in Oakland with mainly nonprofit organizations, I knew that there were big pockets of unemployment in East and West Oakland, and something clicked in my head, and I thought, wow, you know, I thought in the 30s they trained people and then hired them to build things. Couldn't we do that now? I mean, the earthquake's a horrible thing that happened, but maybe we can turn it into something that benefits people. So I did a little work on that. Not much came out of it. And then I started to think, where is all this stuff that was done during the 1930s and early 40s? So I went to the architecture library at UC Berkeley thinking there was some big fat book I'd pull off the shelf and it'd all be there. And I discovered that no, there was no book. And then I started to document around Berkeley, around the Bay Area, whenever I traveled. And so I started to document New Deal sites and eventually hooked up with other people. And here we are today. 
And what's the purpose of the tower? Um, there was a woman named Lily Hitchcock Coit, and um, she, when she died, uh, she left money to the city. And she, w- she was very much enamored with the fire department, and she, she wanted to have a, a monument that, uh, that spoke to their service to San Francisco. And so the, the idea behind this was to build a monument, and, and that's what they did. So it turns out that Coit Tower was the first major New Deal art program. This was done under the Public Works of Art Project, which was part of the Civil Works Administration, one of the first New Deal programs. It started in 33. In 1935, the WPA was started. And that was the massive program that hired artists of every type and that did art all over the country. And PWA did too, but much more limited. So you got Public Works of Art Project, WPA, and then under the Treasury Department, you had two more programs. And they did mainly federal buildings. So like post offices, buildings in Washington, D.C., for example. And it was broken into two divisions. One was the Treasury Relief Art Project, and that hired artists on an hourly basis, like the WPA. And then there was the section of fine arts that usually did bigger projects. For example, here in San Francisco, the Rincon Annex Post Office, which is a must-see project also, like Coit Tower, they hired one artist, and he was selected by a committee of artists. So artists would submit ideas and sketches, and then one of them would be selected. And that was on a contract basis, so it was a lump sum payment. So those were the four major programs or a lot of other minor programs. For example, the Civilian Conservation Corps hired artists and other smaller programs. But those were the four, four major ones. What in Quay Tower is interesting, it's a sort of a blend of what you may see in other New Deal arts. So it's what's called American scene, which just portrays the local culture or economy in different aspects. But then also what you'll see here is some very pointed social realism, some political art. So the Coit Tower represents both. And in, if we look at post office art, generally it's more the American scene. It celebrates the economy of an area or some of the history, local history. But occasionally artists do get in little comments or statements of a political nature. And I'm sure to talk more about that when we go over the art. But I wanted to ask you, we, we come from D.C. and used to homeless. I have never seen anything. We're obviously saying the Tenderloin. Okay. That's, I think, probably where it's the worst. But I, it's making me think about during the 30s yeah. when the WPA was going on. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it meant for these artists. And they weren't certainly by our, by our standard, but talk about what it meant for them to be getting paid and how much they were paid. Oh, it was a big deal. The artists, some of them were thinking to do anything just to survive. And so when the WPA came along and they were able to actually do art and be paid for it, it was not only a lifesaver economically, but they were able to explore art. And the incredible thing about it was it brought artists together. So like this project here at Koi Tower, you had a group of artists working together, talking together, eating together, working and exchanging ideas. That was a little bit different because artists, one of our famous artists here in San Francisco, Benny Bufano, used to talk about how we used to have to go to wealthy people and 
quote, sing for his supper and to cultivate patrons. But under the New Deal, he could just work. And also, many people were trained and put to work and learned new trades. It made us ready for World War II, the Civilian Conservation Corps. Many of the young men that were hired in the Civilian Conservation Corps learned trades. They learned discipline. They physically became stronger. So it, it had a huge impact years later when we actually entered World War II. Roosevelt had a very broad vision, a very progressive vision of comprehensive public policy. So the, I see this really outlined in, in a speech he gave in 1944, which is sometimes referred to as the Economic Bill of Rights speech, where he posited that everyone has a right to employment, housing, education, and health care. And think about how far we've gotten from that today. So in a way, the New Deal is really, and all the projects that were implemented, is a public policy yardstick to measure what we're doing today against a time when there were really serious efforts to deal with all those areas. So nowadays, the most visible thing is homelessness because it's on the streets. In terms of education, we don't, because we don't see people suffering individually with their student loan debt. Or we don't see people that are going into bankruptcy with medical debt. And certainly people, you know, that can't make it, that, that have to do work two or three jobs to make it, that's not really visible. That's an individual thing. But all those areas today were so far from a really progressive vision of taking care of everybody. And we actually now are in a new Gilded Age because the gap in income is just as wide as it was when we had the robber barons. So when we had the DuPonts and the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, and now we've got Bezos and Musk and Gates and all those, but the fact is that gap in income is just as wide. So the reason that the New Deal happened and even the reason that post-New Deal, for example, under a Republican president, Eisenhower, was that we had the wealthy and corporations paid their fair share of taxes. We had plenty of money to do these amazing projects, whether it be all the things the New Deal did or the federal highway system that Eisenhower built. So that when we give tax cuts to the rich, we're really taking away in a big way a many of the things that, that could make this country a much better place, a much safer place, and really deal with a lot of social division. Should we take a look at the art? Yes. All right. We wrote all the signage here because when they did a renovation project, they needed, the signage was, it needed more. And what year was that? I don't know, three or four years ago now. Wow, so this is all new since I've been here. Yeah, yeah, this is, oh, definitely, before COVID. And the murals have all been restored since the last time you were here. So, so actually, then maybe talk a little bit about the technique for folks that don't know the technique. Oh, okay. So th this is fresco. The artwork is actually painted into wet plaster. There's a, a base coat of plaster that's put up and then another coat. And that coat of plaster is big enough to do a day's work. And then the next day, another area would be plastered and then the artist paint directly with pigment in, into that plaster. This is a technique that Diego Rivera is known for. 
and many of the artists, uh, there's a back and forth between Mexico and the United States. So we know that Rivera was here, but many people went down and worked with him in Mexico. Some of them picked up these techniques, a few of them did it on their own, but he was very influential, and particularly in, in putting, because the Mexican Revolution ended in 1921, and they had program, an art program that was started. And Rivera and other artists were hired, and they, the, the idea was to educate the populace about many different issues. And they did that on the walls of public buildings throughout Mexico. A lot of people come to the tower here, not so much for the murals. For some, it's a surprise there are murals here because they've come to go up to the top of the tower for the view. But it, they run into this incredible art treasure when they enter the building. All right, let's talk about what we're looking at. Okay, right here in this area, we see a lot of, of murals that are dedicated to industry and development. So this one that we're looking at here is called Anima, Animal Force and Machine Force. And it's celebrating big projects, oil derricks, you see a big tractor, you see a dam. But then on the other side, it, you, it's an agricultural scene and you see animals. So it's talking also about the power of large animals. So the artist is mixed together, the, these two elements, and it's a reminder of really where we came from in terms of being able to do things both in agriculture or otherwise. And then now where we, we have steam trains and technical ways of accomplishing heavy work. Now this side over here, this is a piece by John Langley Howard. And the Howard family was a family of artists and architects. So Henry Howard, was one of the architects for this building with Arthur Brown Jr. His father was the architect for UC Berkeley. And he's got other brothers that also have done art. So his brother, that there's a relief outside that his brother did. And this mural here that he's done looks at, it's a really powerful mural. It's looking at a big dam and you've got a train going over a bridge but it's also looking at mining. So you've got different techniques of mining. So you've got the miners that are going down in tunnels and you've got a dredge here. So it's pointing out piles of dirt that have been dredged up. So it's also talking about the destruction that mining did. So you realize if you look at this, what are these big piles? And you can imagine the destruction of the rivers. Over here, you've got somebody that is mining in a very basic way using a sluice box. And it's a poor family just trying to eke out a living. But we also have some social commentary because we have some people on an outing dressed in suits with a little dog on a leash. And then we've got a cur over here obviously belonging to the, this poor family that are trying to just make it by doing this basic mining. And then the cars, you got a fancy car that those folks came in. And then on the other side, another older car with obviously a, a tire that needs to be repaired. So he's got social commentary. On the other side, you've got striking workers. Mm -hmm. And it's a multicultural group. And you can see, if you look at the leaflet, 
demonstrate on May 1st. So this is a May Day rally. Then we also see at the top of the mural reference, oh, to, to the another type of mining, which was the, using water pressure, which did tremendous damage in California because it basically just blew the dirt off the hillsides so that people could get at the gold that was there. So th this, th there's a lot of commentary in this mural about labor, about class differences, and about environmental damage. And so the leaflet goes on to say, besides talking about May Day, it says, out against hunger, war, fascism. So this raises lots of issues in this one mural. This other one that we're looking at now is perhaps a little more hopeful because you see a guy on the docks and he's just sitting there. So it could imply the, the fact that the shipping had not really picked up from the depression. But over here you see railroad workers that are very active. So they're working and then you've got this worker on top of a, a freight car and it looks like a dove or a pigeon up there. So he symbolizes something that is more hopeful to come maybe a more subtle message than the mural over here, but a message nonetheless. So this mural is by Ralph Stackpole. He was primarily a sculptor. He actually hosted Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera when they stayed in San Francisco. They stayed at his studio for a time. And this is about industry and also agricultural industry, that there's a canning factory on one side of the mural, and then industry, you have chemists working, you have big, big industrial plant, you've got a, it looks like a steel plant here. So he's celebrating the industry that we have. There, there's, you don't see so much on this side of the mural, much direct political comment. If you go to this side, and what you'll notice is you've got a lot of working people here. And then up in the corner, you see a couple of people that are obviously the bosses. Got the, so, got the suits and ties and yes, the hats. Yes. Again, not as direct as we did, as we saw over there with Howard, but the commentary is there nonetheless. Now, right here we have two, two other workers, and they're also on the other side also workers portrayed. But up here in this space, one of the, the artists painted, he, he, what he said he was trying to illustrate was the different systems, economic systems. So he put a hammer and sickle up there, he put a symbol up there for capitalism, and he had one, I think, for it was cooperation, if I remember correctly. And this caused a major uproar, and it actually closed down the project for a time and then the, that, those images were taken away. So that was probably the most controversial thing that was done here, but the mural was also criticized for some other political commentary, particularly in, in the mural over here by Bernard Zockheim, where it comes out in the newspapers that people are reading. So some of them are just commentary of the day. It's the one headline, CWA, Coit Tower decoration, and the people that were involved in the project. But then others 
talk about other things that are going on. And we have one artist reaching for a book, and it, the book is Karl Marx, Das Kapital. Th this, again, was controversial, but it's still here. So they didn't wipe this out. People defended the murals, and it, it, we can still see this. The artist painted his, actually, that, that's, an, that's Ralph Stackpole there, and then his daughter was also painted into the mural, and she was a great supporter of the, restoring the murals and making sure that they stayed safe, and she died a few years ago. She was in her 90s. Over here is another mural on, that portrays newspapers, but it's, it's newspaper production, and now we can see some of the social commentary where it seems like all the reporters are guys and we have a woman here taking notes. So it, the artist doesn't really say that for sure, but you know what the, at that time that there were not that as many women in doing news as there were men. The woman that did this mural also did the mural in the Berkeley post office. This is Suzanne Scheuer. So, this mural is a wonderful mural. This is by Victor Arnatoff. Arnatoff also did the murals at George Washington High School, which has been in the news recently. This is called City Life, and he doesn't pull any punches. It's, it's City Life warts and all. You've got people in the produce district on one side, then you've got a busy street scene. There's a reference to Charlie Chaplin and City Lights some of the famous buildings and monuments of San Francisco, but on the news rack, papers, masses, daily worker, and then other papers from other countries, foreign countries. And then on the other side, the other news rack, we have magazines, and there's one screenplay that t talks about, the type on the bottom, it says, Hollywood nudist movie. And at this time, the movie production code was being developed. So movies, when this was done, this was pre-code, but soon after, there was the movie code. So there's a little commentary there. There's a, you see a car accident. You see some guy being a, a stick-up with a gun in the guy's, and reaching for the guy's wallet. Now, there's one street sign in this mural, and it's Montgomery and Washington. And Montgomery and Washington is the corner where the Montgomery block was, which is a building that survived the earthquake and fire in 1906. And by the time the 30s came around, it was occupied by many artists as live workspace. So there were some of the artists that painted Hirokoi Tower for sure lived there or in the neighborhood and would walk up the hill like I did this morning and come here to work. So that's why he, the, we got one street sign, Montgomery and Washington, to commemorate that, that space that was occupied by artists. You also see Stackpole's sculpture up there. I noticed yeah. that, uh, yeah, yeah, this is the sculpture I just saw this morning yes. at the Stock Exchange. Yeah. yeah, and of course Chinatown. So it's a, an incredible view of the city and also, again, some social commentary. We've got a couple of scientists here that are commemorated on both sides of these windows. Actually, one scientist and one stockbroker. <laughs> so, 
that this mural is an interesting one. This is Banking and Law by George Harris. It, again, interpreting this, you've got the lawyers on one side and the bankers on the other. So it, it's a commentary on capitalism. You know, how the law, you know, how the bankers will hire the lawyers to protect their, you know, what they do. So it, on, on, on one level, it's just showing you lawyers and bankers, but on another level, there's also some commentary. And the artist also wrote, he got funny with some of the names on the law books, and he put some of his fellow artists it also in, into, the, in, into the titles of the books. This one celebrates California agriculture. And this was one of the women artists that, that did this. And it's sort of the whole range of agriculture from, you know, you see horses, you see a horse pulling up, not really a plow, but lifting hay bales up into a barn. You got a tractor, but you do have horses over here pulling a big wagon. And then people in the flower industry, oranges, which were big in Southern California, an almond orchard, apricots, and more flowers, and of course, wine on the other side. So this one it d doesn't have a lot of, again, political comment, but it does commemorate one of the early New Deal programs, the National Recovery Administration, which tried to regulate prices at the time. It was later thrown out by the Supreme Court, but the famous Blue Eagle was, was to tell people that these products were produced under the regulations of the National Recovery Administration. Again, we got a cowboy on one side, we got a farmer on this side. Th these are done by Clifford White. He was the guy that painted the symbols representing the different economic systems that was heavily criticized. He was originally from England. Many of the artists were immigrants. So the New Deal art programs hired women, hired men, hired people of color, and hired a lot of immigrants who so brought their skills with them. This one is the focusing on the meat industry. It's got some things in here. U.S. government inspection, which was a was relatively new thing to inspect meat. And particularly, as you see here, these are hams. So the, one of the issues in inspecting hams was that the, the parasite trichinosis would come from hams. So that is indicating that. And then a little hard to see with the glare, but we've got salamis and sausages here. And so San Francisco, particularly in North Beach, is an Italian neighborhood. So it's known for its sourdough bread, but it was also known for its salami factories. And I think this might even be a little bit of a tribute to not only that industry here in San Francisco, but the fact that the artists themselves would pick up sourdough bread and salami and wine and, and share that at lunchtime. And over here, we, we see agriculture and these cows being vaccinated. So it's making sure that the products are safe. And again, th these are some of the artists that are also portrayed as being farmers. And so we have dairy production. And then over here, we get more into forestry. You can see lumber stacked up. And you can see 
forced rework. And here we are. So here's the commemoration of the project. So the tower was erected in 1933, and the fresco decoration was done by the Public Works of Art project and completed in 1934. So if you could just talk a little bit about you spent all this time with these, you've taken tours and just talk. One of the things at Labor History Today that we're always looking at is what's the connection between, I think a lot of times, especially in America, we like our history in the past, very safely in the past. Like things were that way then, but we're okay now. And in, and I've noticed that when you were talking, you were constantly connecting things back and forth. Oh, yeah. And can you maybe talk a little bit about the experience of leading tours and the kinds of questions that people ask or what, the reflections that you've had in terms of doing these kinds of tours? One of the comments I get, and I've gotten it many times, is I'll do a tour and then in discussion afterwards, people will ask me, why aren't we doing all that now? And that might be the, the major takeaway from all this is that this was a time when we really, where the average person was really considered, Roosevelt put it away, I can paraphrase it, the measure of our success is not what we do for those who have much, but for those who have too little. So if you would take public policy today and flip, that's what we've got now, or certainly since 1980, since the election of Ronald Reagan. Because I see the New Deal is really running up until 1980. Because if you look at the public policy, it wasn't quite as intense and developed as under the New Deal. But like I was saying, I was talking about Eisenhower. He continued a lot of the New Deal and then all the way through. And it's only when we started to develop the the neoliberal idea that, well, if in trickle-down economics, to, to call it what it is, that we've really taken a hard right turn and gotten away from those values. So it doesn't matter, Democrat or Republican, since 1980, we've essentially living in this country under regimes that do not put the person at the bottom as a priority. And so all the tax cuts for the rich, all the other things that we do is a result of that. We have crazy policies here in California. We actually, it's ironic, but we have Soviet-style central planning for housing in this state, where the the state in Sacramento dictates housing policy, strips local zoning power with the idea that somehow that's going to create housing. But it's a focus on market rate housing and, again, trickle-down economics, that somehow if we can build lots of housing, it's going to trickle down to these people that are on our streets. We've been doing this now for, for many years, and I don't think the homeless population has gotten any smaller, if anything, larger. So, again, we, you have to look at policies that, that work if you're serious, you know, about solving social problems. And all we have to do is look beyond this country for med- medical care. Actually, national health plans do solve the problem. In, in housing, it's public, cooperative, and social housing that solve the issue of rampant speculation in in housing. Free education, we used to have it. I'm a product of a university system here in California that used to be free, and now it isn't. And employment, really putting people to work with jobs that give you benefits, time off when needed, and positive working conditions and a good salary. 
So those are all things that were pushed during the New Deal. And we've, again, gotten away from it. Last question, Harvey. A lot of that art that you just showed me, if you just look at it, it all looks fairly benign. If there's no hammers, there's no sickles. Yeah. There's, if you look at some of the writing, you can kind of see stuff. But if you just, I can see someone just walking in and thinking, oh, California scene, oh, how right. pretty, right? Yeah. Can you just talk, again, you've delved deeply into this now, yeah. but you talk a little bit about the importance of this kind of art, which is, I think is telling a story about California, but it's telling, it seems, multiple stories, maybe. Diego Rivera said it, you know, that, that art should wake people up or move people. I can't remember the exact quote, but... And many of these artists felt they were part of a movement. The, we have no idea of the extremes at the time where, because what the New Deal did, one of the things was bank deposit insurance, which we, when you go to the bank and you see that sticker, FDIC, that came out of the New Deal. So when the big crash happened, people lost their savings. They lost everything if a bank failed, and many of them did. So the, it, it was an extreme time, and artists like other people realized there's got to be another way. Many of them grabbed it because they, they could see, or they thought they could see what was happening in, in the Soviet Union. They went to that as an example. But the fact is, they were seriously concerned about changing things in this country because obviously the system that had led to all this suffering after the stock market crash in 1929, that system didn't work for people. And now we've become full circle where, again, we've got the biggest gap in income since the, the Gilded Age. So we're f facing the same kind of extremes. And artists have, I think, always many artists not all you can put a pretty picture on the wall but a, a picture that's well done but also says something to people i think that's the kind of art that moves me i'm rick smith and this is labor history in two on this day in labor history the year was 1917 that was the day IWW leader Frank Little was buried in Butte, Montana. Little had been lynched on August 1st by police agents thought to be working for the despised Anaconda Copper Company. He had arrived in town to help organize 14,000 striking copper miners. Devastated by the deaths of 168 miners in the June fire at Granite Mountain and Spectacular Mines, mine workers formed the Metal Mine Workers Union and walked off the job. Frank Little had previously worked as a hard rock miner and organizer for the Western Federation of Miners. He also took part in the free speech campaigns on the West Coast. Little was involved in early drives to industrially organize oil workers and lumberjacks. He voiced his opposition to the First World War and sought to stop workers from enlisting. When Little arrived in Butte in July, he worked to build strike support, picket lines, and spread the strike to other trades across the city. Early on August 1st, six masked men broke into the boarding house where he was staying. He was beaten and taken from his room. His assailants tied him to the bumper of their car and dragged him through the granite streets of Butte to the Milwaukee Bridge where he was hanged. An ominous note was pinned to his bullet-ridden body with the words that read, Others take notice, first and last warning. It included the numbers 3, 7, and 77, as well as the initials of other union organizers in the area. As many as 10,000 marched in his funeral procession. Days after his lynching, martial law was declared. Labor radicals were rounded up and charged with espionage. The miners' strike and union were crushed.
Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Now wake up, boys. Get out on the rock. It ain't daybreak, but it's four o'clock. Oh, no, 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 Pop. You know that ain't the play. What you talking about? It's the WBA. Oh, the WBA. Now, you can hear more about Frank Little on last week's Labor History Today. That's it for this week's edition. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, you sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a great labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to Harvey Smith for taking time out of his Saturday to give me a special tour of the Coit Tower murals. Living New Deal has mapped 18,000 New Deal sites across the country. You can find out more at livingnewdeal.org. Thanks also to Lisa Garlock for taking the photos of the Coit Tower murals. Again, you'll find them on the Labor Heritage Foundation's page on Facebook. Our music today was WPA by Ethan Litton and his orchestra and WPA by Louis Armstrong and the Mills Brothers. Thanks so much to Michael Funky for finding these for us. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts, news, and history. Subscribe to the Labor Heritage Foundation's weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.